So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often to their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm your host, Yael Osabski, broadcasting to you on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. Today is the 30th of August in the year 2013, and I am broadcasting to you from the city of Vienna, Austria. We have a, a good show lined up, and we're going to dive right into it here. We're going to have a special guest. He has been on this program many times before, so we look forward to his insight now we're going to head right into the show. On the line with me, I have Sir Chris Redfield. Sir Chris Redfield has been a guest on our program many times, and he is here to hawk his new website, the tokencapitalist.wordpress.com, and he's there to, I guess, uh, split the proverbial shit with me. So welcome, uh, Sir Redfield, to the program. Thank you very much. All right, you sound uh, crystal clear. <laughs> Um, I guess we can begin. We have a little document here full of links, and the number one top news item as we see it is what is going on in Syria. Now, I have my, my own views on this, but I figured I'd, I'd yield the floor to you as this uh, was your suggestion. So what uh, lessons do you think can be offered from what is going on right now in Syria? This is not going to be any comment on what's happening in Syria per se, more the periphery, right? So we have two countries. We have the Great we have Great Britain and we have the U.S. And the U.S. has a clause in its constitution origi- originally saying that Congress is vested with the power to declare war. And um, instead of that being the procedure for war declaration or attacking or bombing, uh, President Obama simply issued a statement where he said that uh, it may be happening on Thursday or Friday. And as opposed to what happened in Britain where it went to Parliament and Parliament happened to vote it down, but it's just ironic that it was the U.S. that seceded from Britain because of uh, too much centralized power in the monarch, but in Britain, they're following what the Americans, constitu- what the American Constitution was meant to be. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really know too much about the parliamentary system, which I think is a bad thing. 
And I've been doing a lot of my own research lately on parliamentary systems, mainly by watching the Danish show Borgen, <laughs> three seasons straight, which actually isn't research, but it's a lot of fun. And we really get to learn is that these things are very, very shaky. As the U.S. Constitution designates, the president can be in power for four years. He makes a bunch of executive decisions. He you know, is able to do this and that. But when you're in a parliament, every single vote counts. And if you have a majority against you, your government could fall and new elections could be triggered. So that's something that I guess you could, as someone who is in favor of limited government not wanting to centralize, you could be in favor of that. And the UK example that you bring up of uh, them putting down a motion to try to put any sort of, uh, I guess, any action or intervention in Syria kind of shows that the system worked in a way. You know, and there are a lot of people who will go on television and talk about why this happened or that. But at the end of the day, that's what happened. And in the U.S., you have this stupid debate of not can the president do it, but when the president will do it. Yeah, and I was um, I was just you know I was just listening to the radio yesterday, and most of the, the the debate and the questions were kind of about journalists asking for more information about the president's decision. Mr. President, can you explain your rationale? Mr. President, can you tell us why it was that you decided at this time? Blah blah blah. And it's it's sickening. It's, yeah, it's very unfortunate that it's not the case that we're debating. Uh, whether this action should be taken, but more kind of, Daddy, why did you do this? Yeah, and it's it, journalists are supposed to be there to reflect the laws of the day and serve as sort of a check, as a fourth of state. And whenever they do stuff like this, like, Mr. Obama, why did you choose to do this and that? And they start doing an emotional story that we would hope to read in Vogue magazine. You know, nobody is doing their job. I saw a I think it was an interview with the, or it was the press conference with the White House spokesman. It wasn't Jay Carney. It was just a deputy that they put up there to be grilled. But his uh, quote that he had is, uh, the president of the United States is elected to protect the national security interest of the United States. And I just heard this clip and it just made me wonder, you know, I think everyone in the country has lost their sense to read. I don't think the term national security interest ever appears at all in the Constitution, yet somehow we've allowed in this present day and age in the year 2013 to give this one person so much power that he can decide to go bomb another country just like that. It's sickening. It's I, sickening. I don't I don't know what to say. Yeah, I mean, you're right. <laughs> you're right, you're right. So I have an article on the UK Parliament rejecting the Syrian action in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. Uh, you, you can listen to that. Uh, we are broadcasting on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda stream. And as a reminder, we shall have uh, this update on the podcast in the iTunes store, so you can follow it there. Uh, other articles, there is a great article by my favorite journalist in the UK, Robert Fisk. Uh, this is at The Independent. He has an article basically saying, Mr. President, do you know that al-Qaeda is fighting on the same side as you? And he has a, a very interesting take on this and uh, spells it out pretty easily why this is a bad idea. And the president, this, sense, this sets for wars or interventions going forward. So again, uh, you know, just so much going on right now. And I, there are some critical voices which are allowed to float to the surface. But then you have jerks like John McCain, who I've interviewed uh, 
about military industrial complexes and the role of congressional members in the past. And he's the number one war cheerleader. Sir Redfield, any thoughts on that? John McCain is just at least at least he's consistent on on the warmongering. At least we can uh, we can we can applaud him for his for his warmongering consistency. Yeah, I guess I I mean, at the end of the day, it's hard to pin down exactly who he's working for. You know, does he have like a huge escrow bank account being built up by? you know, I don't know, Lockheed Martin or BAE Systems or, you know, there's something going on. This guy cannot just be for killing everybody in the world. No way. That That's not a reasonable policy that you can be elected on. But I guess, hey, people of Arizona, you elected this guy, that's what you get. Uh, another interesting stuff, I guess if I can tie it to here in Europe, Germany has said they will not be going to Syria. France is pretty much uh, leading towards a yes. And in Austria, which is the one of the only neutral countries in Europe, all the political parties came together and said, no way, none of our money, whether it be through our own parliament or through the European Union, shall go to fund this war. So at least there are some countries doing the right thing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And uh, there will be you know, a few, few of those articles linked in the show notes. You know, it's it's as if it's another routine. I remember being at this microphone, actually I was sitting in the same place here in Vienna, Austria, two years ago, talking about Libya. You know, and I guess uh, if you want a comparison, it's the same thing. You have a, this a supposed terrible leader that all these Western guys have dined with, and they've hung out with him and taken pictures and shaken his hand and been all friendly, and then he does one wrong thing, or for some reason the oil pipelines just happen to fall in the way of that country, and then... He's a horrible dictator slaughtering his own people, and we have to go bomb people in order to stop him from killing people. Yeah. Uh, I, another thing is, uh, you know, where is the where is the left again? They're they're not showing very much, uh, especially in uh, in comparison to how they were with Barack and 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 when Bush was in power. And this is still uh, I feel I feel kind of bad con- uh, continuing going after this point about. Uh, hypocrisy and consistency, but the 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 media is well known to have uh, to to have uh, you know quote liberal bias or something like that. But where is the left? Where is the outcry? And I'm interested actually in perhaps looking at a study of rhetoric and whether see in Syria this issue is the 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 story that's being sold, the narrative that's being sold is people are being uh, uh, killed by their dictator, or killed by a dictator-like figure, and with chemical weapons. So we have to go and save these people. And for example, in uh, the war in Iraq, uh, we were sold into going into it because of weapons of mass destruction. So one, on one hand, you have a president coming from the right who is appealing to American safety and or Israeli safety basically a safety type of thing. And now we have a president on the left who is going after this, who is telling the story about compassion and about saving the people who are there. Uh, And I think that those are reflective of the positions of left and right. And that, uh, that perhaps if we, if we did a more in-depth study, we could find that the way that war is sold 
uh, is consistent or uh, consistently comes about in a way that's, that's consistent with the party who's in power. I don't even know if the war is being sold that well. I, you know, I've uh, stated on this program here recently that I, I really don't think that uh, Obama really has any power himself. I think he's being pushed by either his advisors or uh, huge donors. Or, or I mean, this guy is probably the coolest cat in the world. He just happens to be in the worst job in the world, and he's forced to go out and give speeches and do all these interviews about stuff that he probably doesn't at all believe in. And I'm pretty much assuming that's why he's so bad at making a case for bombing Libya or bombing Syria or intervening in this country or that. I think he's just a spokesman who has sort of lost his charm. But a lot of people are still very busy fighting the war on women, Chris. Don't you know that? So Uh, therefore, it's seen as important to protect the president and defend the president and sort of allow other things to happen so that they can still have the D versus R game that favors their side. I think I, I think I know what you're saying, uh, but at the same like I, to push my point a little bit more, just because he's a spokesman doesn't mean that uh, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that everything that Obama does is coming is coming from Obama. I'm just saying that given the political atmosphere and given that it is a democratic president, it would make sense to play up this narrative of compassion in order to be able to dodge criticism from the left. So you're giving him, uh, you're basically giving him free advice now, right? <laughs> well, I suppose, but it's, it, I think the, the, the po- a popular notion of the war right now, the populist notion is at least that the United States is going to intervene in order to save the people from their from the from the head of state, much much like Libya. Yes. Okay. No, I agree with your point. I think that's exactly what's being played, and I, I think the number one place that you want to look if you actually want to know why a, a country goes to war, you have to look at the spokespeople who are at the State Department or the Defense Department or the White House, and sort of the things that they say and the reasons that they formulate. That's really it. All this other stuff that they throw in there about chemical attacks and all this, I mean, these are, they're useful. They're useful rhetorically as sort of tools that you put out there and saying, well, we set this bar and we said that if the rebels cross this bar or the government cross this bar, then we would send in aid for the rebels. It's very useful. And when you create that, you know, it makes it very easy for a president or secretary of state to justify intervening and killing more people. And I, even if you watch the press conference with John Kerry, what he gives as his reason for why we should intervene, we being the U.S. government, is that he saw the YouTube videos and they were really bad. And this is evidence that the Syrian regime is very bad. So if everybody goes on YouTube and watches it, they'll see how bad they are. Wow. That's uh, that's very, that's disturbing in itself that the Secretary of State would say something like that, especially considering that that is what I hear when I talk to like uh, uh, homeless people who are at Occupy movement who just say, just go on the internet. It's all on the internet. You'll learn everything from there. And, and again, people don't know that the internet is not this 
neutral ground where, you know, again, objective information exists, most people, usually most of the time, are stuck in a whirlwind of, I guess you, I'm using your term here, of confirmation bias. They research everything online, but because Google and the algorithms, the way it works, they get the information that they already know is true. It's just confirmed to them again and again. And this is in the Facebook algorithm. All your friends are posting about things that you're interested in. I mean, it's it's all a scam, and it's all really used as a way to control your mind, not necessarily by a central entity, but damn, is it working well. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about the filter bubble, and uh, there's a great TED Talk on that if anyone is interested. Um, just type in uh, filter bubble, and you'll see that you are probably subject to it as well. Yeah, it's Eli, what's his name? Eli Perizer. Beware the online filter bubbles. I'll put that in the show notes at libertyinexile.com. It's a really good video. Awesome. So, uh, token capitalist, what other, what other stuff you got for us here? Well, do you want to start talking about my article? Sure. Well, all right, let's go for it. Uh, first, I wanted to preface it with this, with the idea that this is kind of a... Uh, a uh, uh, it's just a it's a rhetorical type of uh, article. It's meant to temper the hostility towards capitalism in the feminist community. I myself consider myself I, I, I myself consider uh, I myself consider myself to be a feminist. So this isn't coming from an anti-feminist point of view, although um, many feminists are anti-capitalist. And I, but I, I don't think that these two things are. Um, uh, necessarily exclusive. What's that? Mutually exclusive. Right, right. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not. They're not necessarily in conflict with one another. So um, the idea of of this work is that um, birth rates and death rates uh, uh, in in pre in pre industrial society, birth rates and death rates. Uh, in a kind of roundabout way, end up determining standards of living for that various for that particular society. So, when birth rates are are exceeding death rates, you're going to have a an amount of you're going to have um, a lower quality of life. And when death rates are exceeding when death rates are exceeding birth, uh, birth rates, you're going to have a higher quality of life. So, uh, these earlier societies. Whether whether they exactly figured this out, like with that type of terminology, is probably not the case. But they figured out that their quality of life was dependent on the population size and population growth. So they they did things to enact a way of populate. They they tried to control population, and one of the ways that they controlled population was through uh, birth rate control, and they could have gone birth rate control. They could have gone death rate control. Death rate control is a little bit more grim, if you if you will, because that would uh, that would include uh, people like the society killing people or exiling people, which they did. Um, eugenics, so eugenics, right? Eugenics in pre-industrial society, I suppose. Mm. But I mean, there was expo there was exposure. Uh, babies were exposed. Uh, into you know that's the the practice of um, 
the baby being brought out into the wild away from the away from the the city or the town or society and then just allowing nature to take its course um this is kind of what happened to uh moses in in the bible he was i think this is a, an example of being exposed but um so there was death rate control somewhat but the main way that populations were controlled was through birth rate control and this this was something that emerged and uh, males and females were both subject to uh, uh, norms and customs which controlled their sexual behavior uh, and it controlled their their pairing so basically the idea is that in in pre-industrial society uh, society uh, society um, norms and customs emerged in order to control men and women but uh, there's a large control put on women. So and that it's more as a way to control the population and not just the number of population, but sort of the types of people that are produced? Is that what you're saying? Not exactly. It's more, it's more about keeping the population on a steady pace of growth as opposed to like a skyro, like a exponential. So this is like, like in China, for example, today. Yes, yes. Um, so anyway, along with this, along with the, uh, throughout history or throughout pre-industrial history, we have a steady rate of population increase, and we also have a steady rate of technological increase or technological innovation. The rate at which techno uh, innovation happens allows for populations to grow. So uh, the more the, the more innovate if if innovation were to happen very quickly, it would be possible for the population to grow quickly also without having too much diminishing returns to land, too much diminishing returns to the re to resources. Um, this is getting complex. I really I recommend that you read the article. It's it's it, it's better than how than what I'm doing right now. But the main point is is that. When the Industrial Revolution happened, the rate of technological increase increased at such a rate that population control through these norms, customs, misogyny, patriarchy, the rate of technological increase increased at such a rate that these constraints on population, although they were embedded in our culture, were no longer necessary. And so this is a, uh, a possibilities-based explanation for why feminism was not only possible, uh, but uh, or it was not only desirable but also possible. It couldn't have it couldn't have happened without um, without the without the need to restrict population. Okay. All right. Well, uh, for those who are interested, it will be at uh, the show notes at libertyinexile.com and your website again there sir redfield is the token .com. so if they want the the in-depth take and uh, your own thesis that you formulated here that's the place to go I appreciate it. was that clear do you want to ask me any questions on that because i feel like I, I was kind of not the clearest explanation no obviously it's a it's a very academic argument but you're really looking at sort of something that goes way beyond my own pay grade 
So I, I shall leave it at that uh, as far as you know why populations expand and the reasons that we don't need to control how populations grow anymore, I, I think is a, an interesting argument and obviously I can't make it. But that's why we rely on people like you, the token capitalist, to go deep into it. All right, thank, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, and, and uh, if if you want to ask me any questions on it, go ahead and throw up, uh, throw up a uh, throw up a comment on it, or send me an email, and uh, I'll be glad to, to to answer any questions you have on it. Good man. Now, another field of expertise that that you have is the minimum wage. Now, not because you're on the minimum wage, but because you studied it, you know the effects of raising or hiking the minimum wage, and you yourself had a, a great anecdote before that you shared with me about people who are protesting for a higher minimum wage in fast food restaurants. So what's going on here? What's the background of this story? Well, the anecdote that I shared is is that there is a, there are some protests going on outside of outside of uh, fast food restaurants around the nation and the US in, yes uh, yeah in in the U, in the US and in addition to these demonstrations and these rallies and these protests the participants are going into the fast food restaurants and attempting persuasion at the workers themselves to join the rallies and to join the protests and to join the demonstrations and to to basically to strike they they are Persuading the workers to uh, leave their job, like to leave their job, leave their duties, and allow for well, a, they're they're attempting to persuade them, right? Right. It's an attempt. It's, it's a, they're attempting to persuade them. Uh, and um, just one example that I have is um, is there's an episode where the workers were told that their manager would fire them had they uh, participated in the rallies. And to me, I, I just felt an immediate, uh, an immediate pang of like, of, of compassion. And I felt very, very, very bad for these fast food workers who are in a, in a obviously uh, difficult situation, but also that these white middle-class college students are coming from their, uh, from the shadows of the ivory tower and going to the, going to the, going to the, the locations of these of these restaurants, and at no risk to themselves, are persuading, uh, trying to persuade people to do things that would ha that are very risky for them. That that is their livelihood. If they if they lose that, it's gonna it's gonna cause serious harm. And uh, I don't know that those college students that I'm talking about are going to be able to have the resources to put them up or to pay their rent for a number of months until they are able to find another yeah. job. Uh, it's just it's just a bad situation. And the idea that it really is these, these ivory tower academics who are causing the college students to go out there and possibly cause harm to these, to these fast food workers, even though it's in the name of benefiting them, it's very, it's very unfortunate. And I, it, it's cruel and it's, it's wanton. I think uh, a lot of people are calling for something like a fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is uh, you know egregious. That's a, if you were to do that tomorrow, you're talking about huge sorts of inflation. But we won't get uh, too much in the technical details. But I, I just wanted to share a story of myself. I was traveling recently, and in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, 
they only have maybe two or three people working the registers at a place like McDonald's. And instead of hiring more workers, what they have is about 10 different machines where you can place your orders. Now, the machines are, are not uh, too difficult to work. It, it comes in a multitude of uh, different languages if people are interested. And you can order right there. Your food comes just as quickly and your service just as much. And you don't need a human being. What, what, was, the, what, what was the restaurant? McDonald's. Oh, yes. I saw that you actually went to it. I saw the, an article about they're, te- they're doing a couple of uh, test, test places of that. Well, no, they have they had that in Lausanne, Switzerland, and I've, I've seen them here in Vienna, and I think I, I saw some in Germany as well. I mean, the, this is something that's sort of already out there, and when a fast food chain is being required to pay workers $15 an hour, just to take the U.S. example, well, that necessarily means that all the prices of the fast food will have to go up. Therefore, it really won't even be fast food anymore. It'll just be really expensive, crappy food. And there's plenty of that. <laughs> there's plenty of that already. We don't need more. Right, right, and, right. Again, this is just another instance. And there are some really good articles of people who can, I guess, uh, argue this down a lot better than I can. But I think this goes to the arguments of, of Bastiat and Henry Hazlitt that as soon as you attempt to help one group of people, you put another group of people into a worse situation. And in this case, yes, you might be giving the workers a a higher pay for a little while, but then more and more people are probably going to stop going to these fast food chains because they're not as cheap. And all the people who rely on McDonald's and these other places to get their food because they don't have enough money to pay for a a three-course dinner, well, they're running low on options and they're going to have to go elsewhere. And it's just a spiral, and it never ends. And, of course, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and the, the, uh, I think one of the important lessons to it, – it, it's kind of fundament, it's fundamental. There, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, and you can't raise the minimum wage without it costing somewhere, so, uh, somewhere, somewhere else in the economy. And – but Chris Redfield, aren't these workers being exploited? I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to. I'm willing to uh, concede this exploitation point because I'm not really interested in, in the language and, and this, this inflammatory rhetoric very much. But given we can we can postulate that they are being exploited, and uh, the point is that they are still better off than. Uh, you know, free uh, people who were, uh, quote, you know, not, well, just in, in places that, in places that attempted utopianism, like the Soviet Union or like North Korea, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea today. Um, People's Republic. Is it the Democratic People's Republic? Hold on, I got to look is, that up. It, no, I can guarantee you that it is. <laughs> I can oh, guarantee you. Also, look. Can you look up the uh, USSR? What the USSR stood for? I, I, I'm just escaping me right now. But uh, United Soviets. I don't know. Hold on. These places that attempted utopianism, the utopia and utopianism. Oh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yes. The uh, places like that that attempted this utopia, utopian vision. The people there were much, were and are much worse off than places that attempted a pragmatic approach to things. And I 
consider this, the, the group of countries that were pragmatic to be capitalist countries. And uh, even though not everyone is in the best of, the best of circumstances, that the system and the workers there, to some, to some reasonable extent, are doing okay. And you know, we, we see these stats uh, put out by uh, put out by the right about how uh, poor people in the United States have two TVs, cell phones, air conditioning, washer dryers, dishwashing machines, uh, all of these modern uh, conveniences, and really signs of wealth and signs of a modern society, signs of modern living, um, and and that even though it comes from perhaps uh, 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 a like maybe a kind of a cruel source, the I think the the point stands is that the living conditions of even the poor in capitalist countries are better off than the 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 poor in like these places that preach utopia. Yeah, and it always comes down to what can you do to try to to help people who are in a bad position. And a lot of people might say, well, I'll give that guy an opportunity. Uh, perhaps I'll link him up with somebody I know. Maybe we can offer him a job. Other people say, well, it's the government's duties, the government's role, meaning we need to use collective force and somehow give this guy money or we need to change business so that it is more open to hiring him. I mean, there's just different ways to go about it. And I think for people who are, would like to at least advocate some sort of stable, peaceful society, you really just have to take the path that uses the least amount of coercion and force as possible. Now, that that's my own opinion. It probably might not be shared by a majority, but I think at least the first part of our scenario here, the first example where you attempt to help somebody I think that goes a little better. I'll just give a, a small little example of my own. I used to work with a fellow at uh, a restaurant uh, in North Carolina, and he was a cook, and he lost his job, unfortunately. And he came to me, and he was just talking about his situation, and I, I decided I'd do something for him. I'd call up my former employer, and I'd recommend him. I, I helped him with his application. I helped him with his CV. And guess what? He got a job, and he was able to, to pay for his, his daughter, pay for his cell phone bill, and to pay his rent. I did not ask the government to force the old employer to change their policy and rehire him or, or ask the government to give him money. I did what I thought I would appreciate uh, someone doing for me in that same situation. I, I, think that's, that's, I think that's the best you can do. I think that's the best you can do. Um, yeah. And, if, and, I, and I wanted to say one more thing about this minimum, about this minimum wage thing. Um, Jason Brennan in uh, the Bleeding Heart Libertarian blog uh, makes the argument that this idea of uh, price manipula uh, government price control and basically price manipulation is bad for one reason because right it, it, it distort it may have, there's this uh, there it distorts prices it, it's the price distortion that filters through the rest of the economy and it it, it, it hurt it. It makes distortions elsewhere as well, right? That's the uh, that's the Austrian approach. But at the same time, it's really this, this call for this call for a minimum wage is a attempt at society and I think leftists to outsource moral obligations, right? So the left believes that there's a moral obligation that people have uh, uh, 
some kind of minimum standard of living in the in 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 social well in a in a social safety net. Um, Hayek thought this. Um, Milton Friedman, to some extent, thought this as well with his advocacy of the the negative income tax. Uh, to the extent that I'm willing to buy this argument, which I think, which I am, um, uh, which I am, um, Brennan makes the case that the left and society in general is trying to outsource moral obligations onto employers and or outsource society's moral obligation onto employers. So he's saying that whatever marginal, whatever a worker's uh, marginal, uh, uh, marginal, marginal revenue product is, employers can pay them that, can pay them the going rate. And it's incumbent upon society to kind of pick up the slack, kind of in like this way that, uh, that uh, the left and others, libertarians included, um, criticize the system that kind of happens at Walmart, how, how, like what, like this very large percentage of Walmart's employees are receiving a vast amount of government assistance in some way, and we're like the 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 idea is that government is subsidizing Walmart. Well, that's that is true to some to some extent, but in that way, prices are not being uh, prices are not being distorted as much as they would be with minimum wage. Um, no, in a way, and I, I think that argument always goes to, uh, it's sort of this angle of saying, well, Walmart does, it pays its workers so poorly that the government has to go in and, and start paying for you know the rest of everyone's uh, health insurance or you got to pay for food stamps. When it's really the other way around, it's because the, the dollar is so devalued now that, uh, you know, the let's say the price that these people are, or the wage that these people are getting just is not very high. And now, because the price of everything else is going up, like food and healthcare, it, to have an ordinary job and attempt to pay for it is almost impossible. But that's not the fault of Walmart. Walmart is just an actor in the game. But the people manipulating the game are those that are printing the dollars and going to war and spending all the, this money and making it harder for everybody at home. That's true. That's a great point as well. Walmart is not acting in a vacuum. The workers are not acting in a vacuum. Uh, there, there is, there is lots of lots of other things at play, and uh, and the Federal Reserve is something that 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 is a big player in that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great point. So, Chris Redfield, we talked about Syria. We've talked a little bit about uh, capitalism, feminism, and uh, the Malthusian ideals. We've talked a little bit about the minimum wage and McDonald's. What other topics are, uh, I guess, floating across your own news feeds or your own social networks or things that are of interest to you that have sort of popped up recently? Because I have a couple. Uh, I think I shall yield the floor to you, however, because you are a guest here on Liberty in Exile. So uh, anything you would like to, to throw our way? I appreciate that. I think I was just uh, maybe a small plug for the, uh, the organic emergent um, protests that are kind of happening this this Friday and this weekend about um, about Syria. There are there are a number of protests happening at least in my neck of the woods. Oh really? Um, uh, so I encourage listeners to go and check out to see if there are any protests in your area or if you want to organize one yourself. Um, I think that it's something that is that is that going on on Facebook? People putting together events or is this kind of spontaneous or? Yes, it's, 
it's people spontaneously putting Facebook events up um, for, for locations and times. So is it like protest uh, U.S. imperialism or protect Syri- Syria or what, what's the how's it mostly being framed? All the ones that I've seen have uh, have been an anti-intervention uh, have come from an anti-intervention angle. Cool, I dig that. I think that uh, I think that Iraq uh, Iraq is very is very fresh in our minds. Yeah, you know, and it, it's sad that it only has to be Iraq because most of the wars that have occurred in the last 200 years have been pretty unjustified uh, in a sense and mostly started by lies that have been started by people in government. And that's the unfortunate fact of history and it is happening once more. Uh, there's some of the articles I'm reading now that, uh, as we know, the chemical weapons uh, that were apparently used, you know, that was the red line. Well, the first time they were used is by these uh rebels that uh, the Western powers have been backing for the last few months. And just to remind listeners, and thankfully this was actually, I guess, either declassified or noted in an article, the entire reason that anything happened in Benghazi on September the 11th of last year and the ambassador was killed was because the CIA, as we well know, was trying to get the weapons that they brought into Libya to help defeat Gaddafi and trying to get them up to Syria to hand to the rebels. And that was declassified and it was put in articles and people were openly writing about it. That's something that I talked about on this show about a year ago, so I'm glad to see that finally coming out. Uh, more of uh, the, I guess, behind-the-scenes action of the CIA and pipelines and things that are way above our heads. Uh, if I can make one thing, though... I do have the Liberty in Exile book club uh, that I've had up on the website for a while. I'd like to add a book to that. Uh, The book is by a German author. His name is Lutz Klavemann. And the book is called The New Great Game, Blood and Oil in Central Asia. He goes to all of these countries in Central Asia where all these pipelines and oil fields are being built and really talks and foresees all the wars that have really happened in the last 10 years. The book is is probably around 10 years old, but still it it, uh, really does a great job of painting a picture of what's truly going on. So I recommend that to listeners, and you can find that on libertyinexile.com on the book club section. Uh, So how how accurate would you say he was in in a percentage terms? How accurate would you say he was? No, he's, he's very accurate. He goes to... Uh, different parts of China. He goes to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he goes to Iran and goes to all these different places and talks about where the conflict is, and even has a a line in there about Syria and how you know they're trying to build the the Arab uh, gas pipeline, and there's still a lot of negotiations going on, and they're really trying to figure out a way to get the Syrians on board, but it's not working. So then there are rumors about it, you know, some sort of rebel movement. And this book was written in 2003. Wow. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, that's a very good book. Uh, now I'm reading one uh, called, it's a French book by Eric Laurent about everything that happened with the banking uh, so-called collapse in uh, around September 2008. That's a very interesting book uh, with a lot of insider uh, knowledge and quotes. And uh, Sir Chris, are you reading any good books at the moment or anything uh, of note? I'm just uh, trying to finish up... Um Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae. I'm dabbling in a little Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Um, Ooh, getting in touch with your feminine side, I see. <laughs> um, what else am I checking out? 
I'm following Matt Taibbi's blog and his work in Rolling Stone, of course. Has, has he written anything good lately? I haven't really seen him. I've been uh, kind of traveling. His recent article, he has a recent article on uh, the student loan bubble, basically, and how the government is making money off of... Um, student loans, right? Student loans, yep. Ah, oh, what a scam. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> we're learning. What's that? No, we're learning. It's, it's uh, interesting to... To see that, especially if he writes about it, and he, he is pretty talented, and I, I I wouldn't say that he's necessarily influential, but smart people read his stuff, and I think he understands what's going on. I think so too. Yeah, that's good. Um, it's kind of sad that there is no Michael Hastings to be around anymore. Uh, there there's a lot of reporting going on about that, but it's only happening really on one website that I would recommend. It's whowhatwhy.com. That's run by investigative journalist Russ Baker, who wrote a very good book that's also in the Liberty and Exile book club called Family is Secrets, all about uh, George Bush and the family. And he has a very, very interesting chapter on how Bob Woodward, whom we know from taking down President Nixon, was actually an agent and pawn of the CIA. And he has a lot of documents to back that up and to prove it, and it it's a, makes a it really changes your your mind and changes the entire narrative of what happened during those years. So I recommend that book and all the reporting about Michael Hastings on who, what, why dot com. Can you, uh, do you want to, I'm familiar with the Michael, Michael Hastings incident, but I think that we would be remiss if we didn't uh, give a quick summary of, uh, of, of what happened there. Sure. So Michael Hastings was a reporter originally for Rolling Stone. He wrote a very critical article featuring uh, Stanley McChrystal, who was head of the forces, I believe, in Afghanistan. Uh, that promptly led to him being fired, him being Stanley McChrystal. And Michael Hastings was sort of a national security reporter, and he was hired in the last uh, year, I believe, by BuzzFeed, a growing site. And he was doing a, a little bit of investigative work on the CIA huge uh, complex and a little bit about the NSA and he was doing stories on uh, John Brennan of the FBI and, and doing a lot of interesting stories again on the national security complex and what happened one unfortunate evening is he had a rental Mercedes and he was driving along on the road and apparently according to witnesses at the scene he was uh, driving very, very fast and gunned it and hit a tree head-on and died immediately. His car proceeded to explode, and he was killed immediately in the blast. And uh, there's a lot of great reporting by Who, What, Why, talking to local neighbors. Uh, people, uh, I guess his wife put out some comments saying that this is very fishy. And there has actually been a lot as well reported about how the medical examiner for the body has like been fired or been pressured. And there's a lot of stuff going on here. So it's sad to see a, a very good journalist, someone who was a very well-celebrated investigative journalist who lost his life, unfortunately. And are you buying any of the conspiracy theories? Well, I mean, I don't know. I There's not enough evidence uh, 100% to say this happened or that. I think it's uh, it's unfortunate and it's also a very startling coincidence that he was writing articles about very powerful people and uh, that could have popped the bubble that is power and rhetoric around them. So I don't know necessarily where I fall, but uh, hopefully we'll have some more information at least in the coming months. Who knows? That's the way it goes. Well, uh, Sir 
Chris Redfield. It's been a pleasure to talk to you on this episode of Liberty in Exile. I, I will point the people over to your website, thetokencapitalist.wordpress.com. Anything you'd like to say in the closing remarks, my good friend? Oh, only that it's been a pleasure. As always, very fun to have you on. Uh, to the listeners, you can go to libertyinexile.com and check out the show notes, everything we talked about, the articles, and the links. And we'll be back to you next week. Once again, I am your host, Yael Osofsky, on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream, saying au revoir et bonne chance à tous. Visit libertynexile.com.